All right. Well, good morning, Doxa. It is good to see you guys. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here, but go ahead and grab your Bible. Uh, open up to the Gospel of Luke. We're continuing this journey as Ronnie talked about. We're in Luke 22. So turn there. Today, what we're doing, guys, is we're, uh, we're beginning a, a three-week Easter celebration. All right, that's really ultimately going to end with billions of people around the world celebrating Easter with us. And, and so three weeks, you should be asking, why are you taking like a single day, Easter day, that's a single holiday, and spanning it over three weeks? Because if you're asking that question, it could be good because maybe you're thinking like we're like those people who celebrate like their birthday week. You know those people, right? Not just your birthday, but it's like the birthday week. I didn't know those people existed until I met my wife. All right, you know? <laughs> Uh, you know, we, it's the week of her birthday. She, she wakes up and she's like, you know what day it is? And I'm like, oh man, Thursday? Did I forget the trash? I'm so sorry, right? And she's like, no, it's my birthday week. Let's go. Let's celebrate, okay? And it's like, seriously, I did not know people. I heard about people that were like that, but never met them. It was kind of like Bigfoot, right? You hear about Bigfoot, you never see him, right? But I, I, when we started dating, I, I started getting this, this vibe, okay, it's her birthday week, and it was like confusing to me, honestly, maybe a little bit annoying at first. But then as I, as I got to know her, as I got to learn who she was and, and love her, you know, something happened and I just realized like, Hey, she's that special to me. Let's just go for it. We'll celebrate the whole week, the whole, oh yeah, oh, right? <laughs> your girls are like nudging your guys. See, he does it, right? <laughs> but guys, this is essentially what we're going to do with Easter is just celebrate it for the next couple weeks as, as we approach this holiday. And so as we begin to, to consider and to celebrate Easter today, we're going to do the same thing that we, we always do. We're just going to open up our Bible and we're going to look at the man, Jesus, because really, as we've been journeying through Luke, all right, here's been the big idea. Jesus and people. This is literally what Luke has been hammering home. Jesus and people. People meeting Jesus because Jesus loved people. And when I say people, guys, we're talking about all people. That, that Luke has been hitting home this idea that the gospel of Jesus is actually good news for all people. It's not just certain types of people. It's not just white people or men or, or just these people of great influence and affluence, right? It's for everybody. It's for prostitutes. It's for poor people. It's for literally every single person, regardless of race and economic status, any of that, all people. And Luke has been showing us this idea that, man, the gospel of Jesus is ultimately very, very good news for you and for every single person in this world. And to help us to see this yet again, Dr. Luke is gonna be showing us, really by allowing us to eavesdrop in on, on a conversation that Jesus is having and a prayer that he has at the end of his, his earthly life. And as we get into this, guys, we're gonna see one of the most powerful, intimate moments of Jesus' entire life, which is just gonna reiterate this fact and this truth that the gospel is really, really good news for all people. Okay, so here's where we're at in this gospel, okay? Jesus is with his 11 disciples, okay? They've, they've lost one. The beginning of Luke chapter 22, they're, they're partaking in the Passover meal. Judas, right after that meal, goes and he gets ready to betray Jesus, all right? We're going to look at that next week as we work towards the crucifixion. Judas pops up again in verse 47, all right, as we get to this idea, we'll, we'll talk about the betrayal and the crucifixion next week. But Jesus and his 11 guys, they're in Jerusalem. They're actually right outside Jerusalem, all right, in, in, at the Mount of Olives, all right, also called the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's right at this point in verse 39 that we're going to pick it up today. We're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is with his guys, 
All right, and, and he's talking to them and he's praying. This is where we're gonna camp out. All right, so Luke chapter two, we're start in verse 39. We'll just read it and then we'll get to work with applying it and understanding it. And he came out, Jesus, he's coming out of the Passover meal, and he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away and knelt down and prayed. And here's what he said. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in an an agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, guys, as we get into this text, we're going to see a couple different things. We're going to focus in on two main things. And I want you to write this down, okay? Number one, we're going to focus on the care of Jesus. We're going to see this through this interaction and this prayer. But then we're going to hit on the prayer of Jesus. And by looking at these two things, by, by looking at the, the care of Jesus, we're going to see his, his heart focus outward towards people. And as we look at this prayer, we're going to see his, his gospel purpose, which is for all people. So we'll start with the care of Jesus, okay? And when you look at this passage, right, the care and the compassion of Christ is, is really put forward in a, in a very straightforward way. Because if you, if you understand where he's at, Jesus is, is facing the most difficult time of his life, the darkest season of his life. His life is about to end. He's going to be murdered. And at this point, it would have made complete sense. No one would have faulted him if he would have looked at his disciples and said, you know what? I've done everything for you. I, we've lived life together. I've preached some of my best sermons to you. You've watched me do miracles. I've hung out with you. It's been great. But right now, I kind of have to go do my own thing. There's something coming up that is ultimately going to kill me. I'm entering into suffering right now. You're on your own from here on out. If Jesus would have said that, that would have honestly made total sense. But look back to this passage, guys. The picture and the reality is very much different. All right, that even as Jesus prepares to enter into the darkest season of his life, the darkest moments of his life, where is his gaze? His gaze is on his disciples. It's still on his followers that he isn't preoccupied with himself and he's not thinking just of himself and his situation, but he's thinking about the needs of others. As I was preparing this week and and thinking about this and meditating and praying through this passage, it made me think of of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter two. If you haven't read that, read that this week. Talk about it in your connection group. In in Philippians chapter two, we get this beautiful picture of Jesus who being in the very nature of God didn't consider his needs above others, but he looked to the needs and the well-being of others. Jesus is constantly gazing at his followers and he's doing it here. And you see him doing this. Look at verse 40. And when he came to the place, the garden of Gethsemane, where he spent a lot of time praying, he said to them, so he's looking at his disciples and this is what he says, pray. I want you to circle that in your Bible. Circle the word prayer, pray. That you may not enter into temptation. Now, we ask questions when we read the Bible, right? We have to ask questions if we're going to wrestle with what this is actually saying. But, but why does Jesus tell them to pray? It's obviously something to do with temptation. It's the same reason that he tells us to pray. Because in doing so, as we pray, as the disciples would pray, they would be in close communication and communion with God. And the temptation that they would encounter wouldn't be so enticing. It wouldn't be so consuming. 
And so Jesus, he tells them, he's like, you pray. And he's encouraging them to maintain this, this close communion with God so that they won't fall when temptation comes. And so we have to ask a question again, is what kind of temptation was facing the disciples here? And honestly, we don't know exactly. There's so many temptations, the same ones that we face every single day of our lives. But I think in this context, guys, when we look at this chapter as a whole and we look at the rest of this gospel account, we can see that the temptations probably were at least threefold. It was the temptation to doubt him, to disown him, and to deny him. And really, we see this. If you look back to verse 31 and 32, Jesus is talking and he said, Satan desires to sift you, to put you through the grinder. And Jesus says, I pray that you just don't disown me and abandon your faith. We look at Judas. What did Judas do? He totally disowned Jesus, walked away. Even Peter, the leader of the apostles in the early church, he denied Jesus. You look at, you fast forward a few chapters. After Jesus is crucified, the disciples are doubting they're looking at Jesus and he, he's dead. They're like, okay, he said he was God. Like, now he's dead. Like, what are they doing? And they're just, they're, they're confused. And knowing that these were going to be major temptations for his friends, Jesus says, guys, here's what you need to do. You need to pray. And I'm not talking about just a, singing a song that is a prayer that you recited since a kid. He said, I need you to pray urgently and intentionally that you don't fall into temptation. He's being very practical for them. And guys, honestly, he's being practical for every single one of us. Because prayer helps us to walk in faithfulness to Jesus. Because I'll ask you this, guys, are you tempted by any of this? To doubt Jesus, to disown Jesus, to deny Jesus, are you, are you tempted in that? Because honestly, I, I remember back in September, all right, when we, when we launched DOXA, when we kicked, we had the, the big salt company kickoff right in the middle of, of campus, and we're doing a ton of outreach on campus, giving out pizza, flyers, all this stuff. We're setting up a huge stage in, in Library Mall, kind of at the end of State Street, all right? And I was out there all day. And throughout the day, I don't know, maybe like 20, 30, 40 different professors and um, like campus officials and students would, would come up to me and be like, what are you, what are you, guys, what are you guys doing? And as I had all these conversations, I'm not, I'm, the, the overwhelming majority of them were kind of like these people were just disgusted by what we were doing and the fact that we were Christians and out there proselytizing and trying to tell people what we believe. And I remember I was, at one point I was standing on the stage setting up some lights, okay, which I should not be doing, okay, because... I don't know any, I'm good at lifting up stuff that are as heavy, but I can't be doing any of this. But at one point I'm standing at the stage and I had a light in my hand and I'm looking out at the, the campus and I'm just watching students and, and people pass by and I'm looking out at this campus that's just full of, of liberalism and pluralism and syncretism and I'm just having this thought in my head. I hear the voice of Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. And I'm hearing that. Now, at the same time, I'm also hearing like the voice of Satan saying, do you really believe that, Rob? Because you know the vast majority of people on this campus, they don't care anything about that and they don't believe a word you're going to say. And I'm standing there on the stage thinking about this. There is a very real temptation that we have to doubt Jesus, especially in our world today. And not just doubt him, but to disown him and to deny him. 
The other, the other day on Thursday, right before Salt Company, I had to do some work on this message. I was at Panera over on West Washington, and I'm sitting there, and, and I saw a guy wearing a UNI shirt, so you Iowa people. It was a University of Northern Iowa. It's really gaudy colors, purple. I don't, I don't get it, right? But I saw it, and I'm, I had this moment. I'm like, I got to do some work because I don't want Sunday to be terrible. I should probably not talk to him. I ended up talking to him for like two hours, okay? So it didn't do any work. So if this is bad today and doesn't make sense, you can blame the UNI guy, okay? But I'm, I start talking to this guy, and I asked him, I'm like, hey, you go to UNI? And, he, and I come to find out, he's moving to Madison in a month. I'm like, oh, that's great, man. I just moved here a couple months ago. We're, we're loving it. And he's like, well, what are you doing? Well, I'm like, actually, and I, I knew that this was going to end the conversation. I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor, right? But he actually was like, oh, wow, okay. And then he grabbed all of his stuff. He's like, I'll be right back. Literally grabbed all of his stuff and came and sat down at my table. And I'm like, oh, gosh, what is this going to be? And so we start talking, and he just opened up his life. And he's saying, this is totally crazy because I'm coming here, and I don't know anybody. And I need to start over. And he was talking about how he was living in Cedar Falls. And he says, I'm, I'm surrounded by people and friends, and I go out with my friends, and nobody loves Jesus. No one cares about Jesus. They're all crazy. They, they say Jesus, but only when you run into them and you spill their beer. And he's just like, I just, I just can't do it. Like, it's, it's literally, I, it's so hard for me to actually faithfully walk with Jesus, and I don't know what to do, but now I'm here, and I even said on the way here that I need to find people that love Jesus, and maybe I would find a church. And we're talking, and he's just talking to me about how hard it is to not disown and deny Jesus when he's around everybody else who doesn't love and follow Jesus. And this is our life, right? This is where you live. You students, it's in your classrooms. Grown-ups, right, it's in your workplace. It's in your neighborhood. This is where we live. The, the temptation to doubt and disown and deny Jesus is very real. And Jesus, in this moment, we see tremendous care and compassion. And he looks at his friends and he says, hey, you need to pray. You need to pray so you don't fall into that temptation. And he's helping them because he loves them, Right? And this is actually, if you, if you read your Bible, this is the second time that Jesus says this. The first time was back in chapter 11, verse 4, when Jesus is teaching them to pray. Right? They said, well, I don't know how to pray. Jesus said, let me teach you. We call this the Lord's Prayer, right? You, you guys that have grown up in the church, you, you recite this, you, you have it memorized. Right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and what? Lead us not into temptation. It's the same thing that Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you want to overcome that temptation? Pray. Pray. Now, how does that work? What Jesus is doing is he's saying, guys, I don't want you to get knocked out of the game. I want you to finish the race, which is the goal, to keep the faith. That one day we would stand before God and he would say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come in and enjoy your rest. And Jesus is saying, I want you to finish. So you need to pray and pray that you would remain in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. Now again, if you know your Bible, you've heard this before. Go forward to Jude, the book of Jude. All right? If you don't know where that's at, find Revelation and go back one more. In Jude, chapter tw or verse 21, Paul is talking... Or, Paul is, or Jesus is referencing this idea of, of staying in the love of God, remaining in the love of God. And in Jude 21, we see this, keep yourselves 
in the love of God. And so there's something that we do that keeps ourselves with God and with Jesus. And, and you might be thinking, like, that seems weird because I thought, like, I read in, like, John chapter 10 that, that no one keeps or rips us out of his hands, that God keeps us, right? And, and even if you look at verse 24 in the benediction here, and Jude, he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to keep you. So there's something that's going on that, that we have to do something to stay close to God and God does something to keep us close to him. And what's happening here, guys, is this is this idea that we, we have to work to stay close to God. That God uses means to sanctify us, to keep us, and to grow us as his people. Theologians, they call this the means of grace. And depending upon your background, you might have some confusion with this. But without God's grace, his life with him is impossible. And we don't just need God's grace to start the Christian life, but to maintain the Christian life and to, to really finish the Christian life. And so if this is true, if it's the means of grace, like what does that actually look like? Where, where do I find this means of grace? What do I do with this? And if you read places like the Westminster Catechism, you find that there's a minimum of three. And I'll have you write this down. It's preaching, it's prayer, and it's fellowship. And this is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying pray as a means of grace because it's through prayer that God keeps us close to him and we can overcome temptation. But he also says it's preaching. Right, and it's, and it's, it's the, I love this idea, guys, because this is why I go to Salt Company every, every week. I don't go because like students wanna hang out with me. They're like, who's the old guy, right? But like I go because I like to sit under Bible teaching. I get to hear Ronnie preach the Bible to me every single week. I need that. I listen to podcasts. I listen to myself every week. Don't really like it, right? But I do it. I need to be preached to, you need to be preached to, you need to sit underneath Bible teaching. It's God's means of grace to keep you close, to keep you in the love of God. And then community, this idea of what we're doing here, gathering together on Sundays, gathering in connection groups, it's means. It's the means that God uses to keep us with him. In Jesus, we're seeing great care and compassion as he tells his disciples, this is what you need to do, to stay close to me and finish the race, and avoid temptation, the care of Jesus. Now, Luke goes on to show us one of the most powerful, intimate moments in Jesus's life. He tells us, or he tells the disciples to, to go and to pray, and then Jesus himself, he goes off a, a stone's throw away, so not very far, he goes off a little deeper into the garden, and he himself prays. And through the prayer of Jesus, so we have the care of Jesus, and we're going to look at the prayer of Jesus. I want to explain this by looking at four words, all right, which is going to show us something of the beauty of his gospel. And the first word I want you to write down is Father. Look at verses 41 and 42, Jesus' prayer. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and he prayed. Verse 42, saying, Father, if you are willing... Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Father. Jesus is talking to God the Father. And what we're seeing here, guys, is the, is the theological truth that God exists as a trinity. All right? And this is not a word that you're going to see in the Bible, but this reality is progressively revealed in, to us through the whole line of scripture. It's, it's shown to us 
And so what we have here is the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, speaking to the first member of the Trinity, God the Father. And what we see, guys, throughout the Bible is that there is one God that exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. They're co-equal, they're co-eternal, they share all the divine attributes, they're living together in perfect community and communication. And while this is beyond our, our comprehension, it's good that way. Theologian Donald Blesch says, the minute that we can comprehend and fully understand and wrap our minds around God, he ceases to be God. Because God is beyond us. And so as the created ones, we can't fully understand our creator, but we see it through the Bible, God's words to us. It's good. St. Augustine, early church father, was speaking of the Trinity. He said that if we, if we try and understand the Trinity, we'll lose our mind. But if we deny it, we lose our salvation. This is who God is. God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And before you and I existed, the God of the Bible was in relationship, in community, as friends, co-equals. And that's why all of us, guys, we, we exist in community, having communication. We all desire friends because we're made in the image and likeness of that relational God. We see this in Genesis chapter 1. And so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they've been speaking for eternity, and here... Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, is praying to the first member of the Trinity, and he addresses him as Father. Because in here is where we get very practical. The most significant, important thing that I could ever teach anybody about prayer is this, is that God is Father. You need to know that. That the primary way that God reveals himself throughout scripture could have done it any number of ways. The primary way that he reveals himself is that of a father. And we get beautiful pictures of God being a father throughout scripture. Zephaniah 3.17 is one of the ones that has changed my life. We, we see this picture of, of a father rejoicing and singing over his kids. In Isaiah 64.8, we see that God is, is this loving father that has created us to be with him as his kids. Father is this intimate name for an intimate God. And what Jesus is showing us by using this language of father, guys, is he's showing us the character of God. And sometimes the, the Bible uses language to, to teach us something. And, and like a way, like, so we, we're like, we can't comprehend God and all that he is, but God in his goodness, in his love for us, he's like, I need to show them something about what I'm like. And so he uses earthly terms to say, I'm kind of like a father. I'm not like your father. I'm better. And so you don't project your father on God. And I know some of us, you, you've had really bad dads. And your tendency is to hear that God is a father and you're going to recoil and say, well, if that's what a father is like, I don't want anything to do with that. God is not like your father. He's perfect. He's great. For those of you who have good dads, if you're sitting next to him, give him a kiss on the cheek and say thank you. Send him a text. Right? <laughs> you're welcome. Right? But God is Father. He's sovereign. He's king. But he's a loving father. He's dad. And you can think of prayer like this, is that prayer is how the children of God climb into the lap of their father to experience his love. And so Jesus is praying, father. And just as a father, you guys that are their dads, you, you love your kids you want to provide for your kids, you want to protect your kids, the father is viewing the son as this. And he prays. And I know some of us, like, 
we, we struggle with prayer. Like some of, us, some of you, you like the ancient monastic monks, right, that would just go out into the woods and you can sit there for like four hours and pray. Others of you, you're like me, when you start praying, it's like a, a bouncy ball got shot out of a gun into a little box and it's just like your mind's going everywhere, right? But I'll tell you this, okay, the key to growing in prayer is not to focus on prayer, but it's to focus on the Father. You know, my kids, so you guys heard of Power Wheels? Power Wheels are like those little cars that kids drive around in, okay? So my mom bought us two of those. Great, took me like seven hours to build, but whatever, okay? But my kids, we had to teach them how to drive these Power Wheels the other day. And, oh my gosh, like I got flashes of what it's going to be like to to watch or teach Lily to drive a real car, okay? Like, (laughs) she's like freaking out and like she doesn't know what to do. And so instead of stopping, she screams and then hits the gas and then raises her hands. And I'm like, ah, okay, right? But I'm, I'm trying to teach Titus how to drive. And Titus, I'm like, don't go in the grass, okay? And don't go in the mud. And so the whole time he's driving, he's staring at the grass. And as he's staring at the grass, he's just drifting towards it, right? And I'm like, Titus, you got to look straight ahead. Look at the sidewalk. Look down the sidewalk and you're going to go straight, all right? And it's going to be great. And he just keeps going. It's kind of like that with prayer. If you focus on prayer, it's like Titus focusing on the grass. You're not going to necessarily go towards God, but if you focus on the Father, the sidewalk straight ahead, you're going to go. Don't focus on being a better prayer warrior. Focus on the Father. And guys, I can say this, that this has been the most catalytic thing in my relationship and my walk with God in my prayer life is understanding that God is Father. Now, Jesus, he's crying out to the Father, and here's what he says, verse 42. Father, if, I want you to circle that word too, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That little word, if, is our second word, if you are willing. And I think the the choice of Jesus' words here, they address the disposition of this loving father. Because hear this, guys. Jesus is not praying to an impotent father, but an omnipotent father who's sovereign and he's king and he's capable of doing anything. All things are possible with God. This should make us think back a few weeks, right, to Luke chapter 18 when we were talking about the story of the rich young ruler, Right When Jesus says in verse 25 that it's, it's, it's impossible for a rich man to get into the kingdom, it's like a, a camel trying to get through the eye of a needle. And the disciples, they're understanding this as impossible. And then Jesus responds to them in verse 27 saying, what's impossible with God or what's impossible with man is possible with God, that God can literally do anything. And so Jesus says, if, if you are willing, can you find another way to take away the sins of the world? Can you find another way besides me going to the cross and suffering? And as you hear this, guys, for me, this testifies to the truth of the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas, that God became a man, that you need to know and see the humanity of Jesus here. All right, because he was fully God, fully man. He can identify with us. Hebrews says we have a great high priest that can identify with our weaknesses. We see the humanity of Jesus here. And Jesus, he's not suggesting disobeying God, but in his humanity, he's saying like, I'm anxious about this. I'm having some some fear. And, And he's just yearning that the father might have a different way than the cross. And the truth is, in eternity past, God the father and God the son, they've agreed that the way that forgiveness of humanity's sin 
would happen would be for the second member of the Trinity, the Son, to die. And so this is, this is where, where Jesus says elsewhere, right, that no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. But here, Jesus, he's not rejecting that plan, but in his humanity, he's speaking to the Father as the Son. And we're having this moment, guys, where it's just intimate, it's painful. And they're having this discussion, and it kind of goes like this. I mean, just picture, that's happening in prayer. You understand the Trinity? We sing that song, all creatures of our God and King. We sing Father, Son, Spirit, right? You have this picture of the Trinity. The Son is crying out, Father. Here we are. We're in this moment. We knew this time was coming. I can hear the armor of the soldiers coming to get me through the garden. Father, they're going to rip me apart. They're going to torture me. They're going to crucify me. And it's not that I'm not willing. I'll do it. But if there's another way, can we just have like one more conversation? Because this is going to be terrible. And the anxiety is so intense in this moment that if you look at verse 44... His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And that word like, this can indicate that, that this is to be understand, understood metaphorically. But there's both ancient and modern examples of this actually happening. Of people sweating blood from a condition called hematidrosis. Which is just when, when, stuff, when like anxiety and stress is so extreme that it causes capillary blood vessels to burst and come out of the skin and mix with sweat. So whatever the point, if this is actually what happened, or if it's metaphorically speaking, it doesn't matter. The point is that there is extreme emotional and physical trauma happening to Jesus before he even got to the cross because he knew what was about to happen. He, was, he understood what was about to happen to him on the cross. And the reason, guys, is not just his impending physical death, but it's the third word, it's cup. Look back to our verse 42 again. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. Circle the word cup. Remove the cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. His anxiety, his agony, wasn't just because he was going to die physically, but he understood that there was a cup that was coming his way. And if we understand the Old Testament, we look at places like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, and this cup is understood to be the cup of God's wrath. And so picture it like this, okay? We have this imagery of the cup of God's wrath and, and this idea of, of a cup. And, and we see the storyline of the Bible. And so it's basically like this. I need to tell you this so you understand what Jesus is actually doing. And it's going to give us a picture of the beauty of his gospel, all right? Is that you and I, we're, we're all sinful. We're all sinners. There's not one of us that aren't. We're broken. And all of our thoughts and our words and our deeds, the things that we do, the things that we don't do, we're, we're broken. We're sinful, right? Every part of us, Theologians call this totally depraved. There is not one part of you that is good. And that's true of me. That's true of everybody. We're messed up with sin. And as we walk through life every single day, just picture it. Every time that you sin, it's like a drop dropping into the cup. Every single day. And you're walking through life, and every time you sin, it's another drop. And at the end of your life, when you die, God in addition to your sin that's in the cup, he pours out the proportionate wrath on that sin. 
So this is the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus is looking at this cup that is filled with all of your sin and the wrath to pay for that sin. And he's looking at this cup that is filled with the sin of the whole world and the wrath of God on that sin. And he's looking at it. He's like, is there another way? And he's sweating blood. He's on his face. And he's saying, Father, is there another way that I don't have to drink every drop in this cup? And the Father says, you know, as well as I do, that if humanity is going to have salvation, you need to drink every last drop of that. This is what's going on. Guys, this is the gospel. Jesus taking your sin and the wrath of God. This is what he was agonizing over. It wasn't just physical death. And guys, and this is where it gets personal. That you need to know that the wrath that Jesus takes is only credited to you if you have faith. That if you are in Christ, you've put your faith in Jesus, the wrath of God is, is not on you. You are sons. You are brought into his family. And so the fear of your sin and all that stuff, like it's gone. Right? That you have joy. You have peace with God. You're, you're, you're brought into the family. You're, you're friends of God and sons and daughters of God. And this is where joy and singing and praise and prayer and war, all of it, it becomes a reality because you're heaven bound. And you know that all the suffering and all the sin that you're experiencing and living in right now is only temporary until you meet Jesus. And so you can rejoice. Now, this is also something really deep and serious that needs to be a gut check for those of us who, who haven't come to Jesus yet. And again, he's a father. As a kid, like, or as a dad, right, you go to your kids and you say, here's the reality of stuff. I need to teach you this so you don't mess up, right? And you're just real with your kid. This is the father lovingly telling us that if you're not in Christ, the wrath of God is still on you. That there's still sin and wrath that is going to have to be paid. And if it's not Jesus paying it for you, you will do that. And you will exist eternally separated from God. It's a loving father just telling people this so that you can know and, and respond. But I tell you this, guys, because some of you are in really great danger. And you should have a sense of urgency as you listen to me preach and hear God's words. Look at this verse. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Look at this part. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Guys, if there's one thing we can be sure of, it's what Jesus talked about last week, that, that he's coming back. I mean, it, he's coming back. Just like he predicted the temple and all that stuff and the destruction, he's coming back and we will have to give an account to the God that created us. And we are completely deceived. Guys, if you're sitting there and you kind of like, you don't feel the weight of this and it's kind of just like a laughing matter, you, you, I just want you to, I'm going to say this in a helpful, healthy way, is I think you might be a little bit deceived thinking that your sin doesn't matter. Because it really does. It's heavy. 
And honestly, it's, it's, it's appalling to look at Jesus in the garden as he's agonizing over this cup and to say, you know what, my sin doesn't matter, I'm cool. I'll come here for my parents, I'll come here for my boyfriend, whatever, I'll, I'm, I'm good. If you don't feel the weight of this, God is just begging you as a father, would you please just feel it and let me take it from you? Because there's no other way. Jesus even said, is there any other way? God said, no. And this is what leads us to our last word and what Jesus said. Nevertheless, verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, circle that, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus prays, the Father tells the Son that there is no other way, and Jesus, the suffering servant, all right, in your connection group, I'd encourage you to read through Isaiah 53 this week speaks of Jesus as the suffering servant. Jesus, in this moment, serves us by suffering for us. He says, nevertheless, he's like, I don't want this, this idea, I'm gonna be crushed. It's giving me great fear and anxiety. Nevertheless, I know that this is the only way to put the sin of the whole world on me and give me your wrath so the people we love and that we created, they don't have to suffer eternal punishment, separation, and pain. This is what Jesus is saying. Martin Luther called this the great exchange, that on the cross, Jesus, hanging there, dying, through faith, says, give me all of your sin. I'm gonna give you my perfection and bring you to the Father. You can have that. And he's doing all this stuff, guys, and I want you to know that he's doing this and he's looking at you because of his great love for you. That even in your rebellion, even when we're running around just totally living anti-gospel, anti-God, Jesus died for you. He said, I'll do it for you. Now, I love the way this ends. Verse 45. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. I want you to circle sleeping. Sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. All right, this section started with the care and compassion of Christ, and it ends with the care and compassion of Christ. And Jesus, once again, he says, pray so you won't fall into temptation. And if we read this account throughout the Synoptic Gospels, you see that, that in Luke, just he says that he came back and they were sleeping. In the other Gospels, it says that Jesus came back three different times to wake them up. So Jesus comes to them and says, hey, pray, because this is like serious stuff. You're going to fall into temptation. You need to pray. And they're like, Gotcha. And they just snooze. And then he comes back and he wakes them up and he's like, come on, you guys, you're not getting this. Like, you're, you're, you're screwing this up. This is, I'm helping you as your friend. And they're like, oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I was just resting my eyes, right? And they start sleeping again. And he comes back a third time. See, the disciples in this moment, they were literally the exact opposite of Jesus. Jesus tells them to pray, then he goes and faithfully prays. He talks to the Father, and you get this picture of Jesus being completely faithful, and the disciples are not faithful. And he tells them once again, pray. And I love this, guys. Jesus, you notice, he doesn't come back three times and says, you know what, you guys... I, I'm done with you. I've been putting up with your crap for far too long, and I'm just done, right? You screw up all the time, you say dumb stuff, and you done messed up, right? I'm, I'm over. I'm over it. You guys are on your own. Go for it. Stay. I'm out of here. I'm done with you. You're done. The, he doesn't say it. 
He doesn't do that. Because I need you to know this, with Jesus, failure is never final. And in this, he looks at him and he says, why are you sleeping? And there's not condemnation that comes right after that, but he says, okay, you know what? Let's do this again. Let's try it again. Let's go back to verse 40. We're going to try this one more time, okay? Pray. Pray. I love that. Jesus is the greatest shepherd that we have. But I need to ask you the personal question. I want you to write this down. Is, is why are you sleeping? Why are you sleeping when you should be praying? Why are you sleeping when people around you need to hear and meet Jesus? Why are you sleeping and not being obedient to Jesus and following Jesus and being baptized as he tells you? Why are you sleeping? Why are you sleeping and closing your eyes to the reality of, of your sin and who you are? And why are you sleeping that you're not coming to him and saying, Father, just forgive me. Why? Why do we sleep? And the reasons, guys, could be so many. But Jesus is just looking at us right now, just as he looked and gazed at the disciples, and he says, just pray, draw near to the Father. Keep yourselves in the love of God. This is an invitation for us all to wake up. It really is. For those of you who are Christians, wake up and pray that you can walk and live out your faith in a way that honors and gives glory to God. The way that you treat your spouse, the way that you act when no one's around, the way that you're with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, the way, regardless, however, let all of your life say the right thing about God. Wake up. That's what this is begging. For those of you who aren't Christians, God's heart for you is wake up. See me. Let me take the cup so you don't have to drink it. Come to Jesus. And I love this about the gospel. We all need him. It's a flattener. Everything, everybody needs Jesus. So let's pray and go to him right now. God, I'm, I'm thankful just even for the imagery of a father. That even though I don't have an, an earthly dad, I, I just, man, I get so much joy and I can just imagine what it's going to be like to be with you forever. And I get to experience your goodness as my heavenly father every day that I walk. So thanks for that. Thanks for loving us. Thanks for giving us your words that we get to gather around and to learn. Thanks also for this picture of, of the cup, the cup, Jesus, that, that just filled you with anxiety, that caused you to, to sweat blood. And guys, as you guys are praying, I'm just going to have you keep your eyes shut. And I just want you to picture that cup. You're holding that cup. It's the cup of your sin and the wrath of God. And I just want Christians visualize Jesus just walking in and just taking it and saying, you don't need to fear that. You don't even need to carry that anymore. Let me take it. 
and just thank him for it right now. feel the weight of my sin, even in this moment, as I sing these songs to you, as we prepare to take communion. But don't let me live in that. And I pray that for those of the people in here that have not come to you in faith, that are still carrying their cup right now, would you move in such a way that they would say yes to you and you would just come in and just grab it. I pray this in Jesus' name.